The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is Jeff Kosis. Jeff is the Senior Procurement Executive for the General Services Administration, a longtime GSA procurement person, somebody I worked with uh, closely when I was back at GSA. So it's always good to catch up with Jeff. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. Always look forward to the chance to talk to you. There is so much going on right now. I think we will have no trouble filling this whole conversation on a huge range of acquisition topics. Yeah, I mean, we have a, such a long list. I know we were talking before the show, like, uh, are we really going to be able to get to all of them? Uh, or will, will I have to have you back? <laughs> so we'll see. Uh, we'll do our best anyway. But a front and center in the procurement policy uh, program that I'd like to talk about first is transactional data reporting um, and what that is, how it came to be. And I know that your office has done a review of it and you know, made a decision that it's eligible to move forward to expansion across the entire schedule. So let's just start talk about the history of TDR and where we are now. And so first of all, Jeff, what is TDR? A great place to start the conversation. For decades, Roger, across the schedules program, we used the power of regulation as our strategy to drive good pricing. When we had a company who wanted to pursue a contract, they'd come in, they'd submit their offer, and we'd negotiate off of a special uh, customer, somebody who got a really good deal. We called it the basis of a word customer. And as it would work, we had a regulation, the price reduction clause, it was really set up so that if that best customer, if that basis word customer gets a discount, then the government gets that same discount. And for the pre-internet age, that was great. It was the best possible pricing model that we could have had in the 1980s, 1990s, and so forth. But as we were starting to really understand some of the forces around big data, we recognized, you know, maybe we can use market forces, the power of competition, Maybe we could harness our transactional data to drive a better deal for the government and to make things better for our corporate partners. So that's how uh, transactional data reporting, or TDR, was formed. Uh, we went through a rulemaking process, and we set it up as a pilot, as a proof of concept, almost a decade ago now, in 2015. When we set it up, we thought that there were four big things that we could accomplish through that effort. And I, I think everyone would really support all four. Uh, one, could we lower prices? You know, who's going to be opposed to that? Can we get better prices at the contract level? Sounds good to me. Two, can we lower the burden? That meaning the burden on industry. In theory, if we're going to use a market force, it should be less burdensome than regulation. Three, can we then better support small business? And finally, can we take all that data we're going to get, take that market intelligence, and harness it in a way that leads to better buying outcomes? So that's what the objectives behind TDR were, Roger. Right. And so you launched the pilot um, with the idea that collection of that transactional data would replace that old, and I like the way you say it, so, you know, driving price by policy, right, as opposed by the market, right? That's a good, I think that was a great, great way to say it. And 
then I think at your point, a certain point, your office did a review of it to assess how the pilot had gone and what the next steps are. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what that all entailed and what you looked at? Sure. A big part of how we approach any type of acquisition innovation is trying to be really open to it and have tests, have proofs of concept, have metrics, have a means of evaluating it. So uh, each year we did an evaluation. How is TDR doing in meeting those four key goals? Are we getting lower prices? Roger, we compared at several points. Uh, we looked at the contract level pricing for products. And each and every time we looked at it, the companies that came in through our transactional data reporting were offering and we were awarding prices that were better at the contract level. Second was all about uh, reducing that regulatory burden. Uh, we evaluated that in a couple of different ways. For any regulation, under the Paperwork Reduction Act, periodically we have to go off and do an estimate of the burden associated. Well, our estimate showed that the burden of transactional data reporting was significantly less than the burden of the price reduction clause. But, you know, contractors are uh, rational actors. They vote with their feet. And when contractors had a choice, they also came in through transactional data reporting. They tried to move over there. Our third objective, that was all about supporting uh, small business. And when we looked at the sales growth, uh, what we found is contractors who came in through transactional data were more successful than ones who came in through the uh, regulatory system. So our first three objectives, they were met and they were met pretty consistently. Our final objective, would we be able to harness that market intelligence? Did that lead us to better buying outcomes? Well, in each of our evaluations, we found not yet that we needed to make more progress in that direction. So that was the biggest weakness that we found in our review of transactional data reporting. And that has been the area where our IG has focused through a series of reports when they've looked at transactional data reporting. They've come back several times pointing out that we're seeing a lack of contracting officer use of the data. Okay, so that's a lot to unpack. And I guess the first thing I would say, you know, I guess that first goal, lower prices, uh, maybe that's an indicator that the that the policy as it's implemented, has already helped contracting officers to harness that data in some sense, or it, just in and of itself, it's a good thing if to the extent it's providing lower pricing than, you know, the highly regulated model with the price reduction clause and all that. That sort of stands out to me. So, you know, I, th I think you've done more than, than you want to give yourself that uh, folks will give you credit for on that regard. Um, but when you talk about harnessing other strategies or approaches to harnessing that information is that really try about how you advise other agencies how they could maybe better leverage their requirements or strategies for utilizing the schedules and things like that does that go into it it's a whole lot of different things what we've seen over the last several years is that more and more big data is driving our acquisition processes in all kinds of ways and even since our last evaluation, FAST has made a lot of progress, first in emphasizing data quality, in working with the uh, contractors to make sure that they're submitting good data that can be matched up. But at this point, we're seeing a whole host of uh, those policy benefits start to materialize. Uh, one is in and around uh, cyber supply chain risk management. Uh, one is around uh, socioeconomics. Another is around healthy supply chains. 
let me start with the last of those. Uh, Irv Kaler, our Assistant Commissioner for General Supplies and Services, he started finding ways to share his uh, data, to share the TDR data with some of his industry partners. You know, we have an objective all about priority supply chains. The Office of Federal Procurement Policy has issued some guidance on the importance of uh, focusing on priority supply chains. Well, if we can share that data with our uh, contractor base, if we can give them more insights into uh, what does the price look like, what items are selling, where do we have shortage suppliers, where do we need more entrance, that's tremendously valuable. And that's one of the good things that we've started seeing through transactional data since our last review. So it's almost like you get you were able to provide a snapshot of the market, not just to the your customer base, but also to folks in industry to understand the the nature of the federal market and what how to adjust to actually you know better compete. Exactly. And remember, this is just the very beginning of use of the data. I expect over time that we'll get more mature, that we'll learn more about how to use the data, that there will be uses that we haven't even thought of today. But starting to share that data both with our customers and with our industry partners, that has so many long-term benefits. Another benefit I really want to highlight, though, is in cyber supply chain risk management. You know, that is a big issue. It's becoming bigger by the day. The folks within FAST have been really figuring out how do we build a footprint of uh, prohibitive items? Roger, you know, we've seen exclusions. Uh, We've seen Congress being really active on that front. And over time, we're likely to see more exclusions. Now, if an agency has bought an item and it is later excluded, if we have the transactional data report, we can go to the agency who bought it, tell them what they bought, when and where they bought that. That is tremendously valuable in all of our services supply chain risk management strategies. A really cool use of the data, something, frankly, I don't know that we imagined when we set this up, but we knew there'd be all kinds of ways to use the data to drive good acquisition outcomes. And that's one. Right. And so, Jeff, we're up on the break. When we come back, we can continue our discussion on transactional data. And I want to talk more about, in particular, you know, one of your goals is to, su- one of the goals of it or the priorities is to support small business. And I like to Talk a little bit more about that and 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 the burden as well, and we can finish up on the cyber as well. So and sound good? Sounds good. All right. Absolutely. Well, my, all right. My guest today is Jeff Kosis. He's the senior procurement executive for the General Services Administration. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jeff Kosis. Jeff is the senior procurement executive for the General Services Administration, and we're talking procurement policy, our favorite topics. Uh, we're kind of geeky that way, Jeff and me. We are. I always introduce myself as an acquisition nerd, Roger. That's absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm there with you. Um, and, but in the first segment, we talked about transactional data reporting. I, I think it's time we'll finish up that discussion and start. I know you were at the end of the last segment, you were talking about cybersecurity and the role that TDR can play in supporting uh, our efforts to for a secure, more secure infrastructure. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Part of what we are seeing is this growth in uh, different types of exclusions. You know, we've seen that from Congress in recent years. Uh, you saw the ban on Kaspersky software. You saw the 
uh, band that we informally call 889. That's the ban on certain Chinese uh, telecommunications. We saw Congress pass the Secure Technology Act. That's the act that created the Federal Acquisition Security Council. We saw them prohibit certain semiconductors in last year's National Defense Authorization Act. We saw a ban on TikTok. So more and more, Congress has been getting into the business of issuing different types of bans and exclusions. Now, when we tie that back to transactional data, uh, I think, Roger, there's a really cool value that FAST provides in having that line item data and being able to figure out, hey, what are all these different exclusions that are out there? And have we bought something before any of those exclusions actually went into effect? You know, so to harness the data, to turn that over to the agency and to let them prune it from the supply chain. You know, there's no way we could provide that information had we stayed under the old uh, price reduction clause uh, regime. But transactional data, that gives us lines of insight. It lets right. us respond to what Congress has been asking, go back to the agency and help them to uh, offer greater security. Nice value proposition for GSA. Yeah, and that and that's... Yeah, I mean, that's another reason why I know you mentioned the, you know, improving the uh, integrity of the data that's submitted. That was one of the things that you learned through the reviews and, and have heard from others about. It seems to me that utilizing data for cybersecurity is, you know, that, that, that dovetails quite appropriately with the idea of making sure the data is, is actionable. Exactly. That's why uh, FAST put a lot of focus first on making sure that the data was accurate uh, on data quality. That was a big effort. Uh, maybe we didn't realize how much data cleansing would be involved. But, you know, the longer we've been into it, the better that FAST is becoming at it. We're building tools. And, you know, so much of the way that we practice acquisition today, it's based on the power of big data. And it's looking at all the ways that we're able to use technology to simplify the acquisition process. Yeah, and it, it seems to me that's the thing about doing a pilot or starting a new program is that you can't you can plan and plan and plan, but there's always going to be unanticipated aspects or, um, or or behaviors or environments that you, that you learn as you do, right? And it seems to me that idea about the you know the the challenges around and addressing the integrity or the quality of the data is something that you could only really learn by doing at the end of the day, which, you know, speaks volumes to the idea of actually getting out and executing. It does. And that's why we've tried to uh, really put an innovation model in place at GSA that's going to encourage us to go experiment and to try things. But recognize not every uh, pilot is going to be successful. But if you go into it with clear metrics, with uh, an idea of doing ongoing evaluations, with having key guidepost checkpoints, uh, we can make the necessary corrections. And, uh, you know, if an occasional pilot doesn't work and others prove wildly successful, well, that is a really good deal. And that's where we want to be. Yeah, I would submit that even if something doesn't work out at the end of the day, you've learned something to help your, you know, your operations go moving in the future. So the other um, thing I wanted to, you know, uh, talk some more about, um, and I think they're intertwined in a certain sense. I mean, reducing the burden cuts across all, you know, size companies, you know, who, who participate in the schedules market. And, 
you know, it's a significant burden reduction versus the price reduction clause and the old CSP. But in particular, it's, it, I think it, it, it's a huge benefit for small businesses. Can you talk about that? Sure. Uh, one of the things that I think has gotten a good bit of attention over the uh, last couple of years was a report uh, on the shrinking industrial base that uh, we're seeing fewer small businesses that are looking to do business with the government. Yet, I think we all recognize the importance of small business. So part of what GSA has been thinking about is how do we attract new entrants? And a key part of that is we have to be easy to do business with. Well, if we have a long, complicated uh, process to uh, pursue a schedule contract, you know that's going to discourage uh, new entrants. Uh, if they have to go set up uh, really elaborate, complicated compliance systems, uh, if they have to go deep into uh, their data to identify all the different price points where they've sold things, that's hard. So the more that we're able to move in a transactional data reporting direction to rely on market forces, to rely on data, and not to require investing in massive compliance systems, the easier we are to do business with. And that supports our objective of bringing uh, new small businesses into the federal acquisition space. Yeah, I mean, in small businesses, the margins are different for them. You know, I mean, I would submit that the you know price reduction clause is just bad, fundamentally bad economic and procurement policy because it restricts the ability of commercial firms to participate in the commercial market without certain handcuffs on it, I guess, from the perspective of having that price reduction clause impacting their pricing decisions for completely unrelated business. But just the whole issue that, that you rightly point out, the cost associated with doing it, you know, I think it, it just, uh, it, it, if we're really trying to attract, you know, innovative commercial firms to participate in the federal market and the schedules are a key entry point, I can't think of a more pro small business policy than moving to transactional data reporting. And has that been the reaction you've gotten from small businesses? Largely, yes. I, I wouldn't go quite that far in describing the price reduction clause, but I think where you and I could find common ground is that we would much rather rely on market forces than regulation in building and running the acquisition system. And that's exactly what we're trying to do with transactional data reporting. And yeah, I think we've seen very strong support from the small business community that they uh, really appreciate the simplification it offers, that it's a better uh, on-ramp, and it lets them uh, enter what I think we all recognize as the premier uh, avenue for companies to begin selling to the federal government. Absolutely. And okay, final question on TDR uh, to close out this segment. Um, And that is, so we're what are the next steps for it? Are, are you working with FAS or how do you work with FAS on the next steps for TDR uh, across the schedules program? So, you know, through our successful testing, I think we now successfully proved uh, the initial hypotheses we started with. That yes, when we rely on market forces, we get better pricing, that small businesses do better and that the regulatory burden has been reduced. We've also... Uh, begun having success in working with our partners to improve data quality and start to show ways to use the data. I told FAST that I think they now need to put together an, a plan as to how and where they're going to address some of the remaining weaknesses. The IG has correctly pointed out some existing weaknesses in data quality and CO usage. 
best needs to work through that in order to actually move forward with an expansion. Uh, they have named a new uh, lead at central office and they're working on their criteria. They're also recognizing that data quality is such a big part of this that there has to be some focused industry training so that our uh, industry partners recognize what is transactional data and how do they submit good data. So as you see FAST finalize those plans, they'll be in a position to make an announcement. All right, great. Jeff, we're up on the break. So when we come back, we'll start turning to some other topics. Uh, I, I'd like to you know, talk a little bit about you know, you know, GSA response to inflation and some of the acquisition streamlining that was done in that regard. And also, you know, a little bit about, you know, what does the end of the COVID emergency mean from a procurement perspective? My guest today is Jeff Kosas. He is the Senior Procurement Executive for the General Services Administration. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jeff Kosas. Jeff is the Senior Procurement Executive for the General Services Administration. And uh, responsible for issuing, you know, policy for GSA. He works with uh, the two services, PBS and FAS. I'm putting that together. He also s- sits on the FAR Council, so he has government-wide responsibilities and uh, agency-specific. And you know, today we're sort of t- been talking about more agency-focused policy, whether it's TDR. And in this segment, and uh, we'll talk a little bit first about the economic price adjustment clause flexibilities that were put in place in response to, you know, the inflation of the last uh, 18 months or so. Um, and Jeff, so ha- historically, so what happened then, you know, and what steps did you take? What, what was the thinking there? I think it's, it's, I think it's a lesson in how sort of to think about a proactive response to a, to a challenge that we collectively in this government and industry were facing. One of the areas, Roger, that we've always tried to focus on is healthy, productive industry relationships. So both Mark Lee, the FAST Assistant Commissioner for Policy Compliance, and I are always trying to uh, understand the industry perspective, what's going on, what are the concerns. And so when we started seeing uh, record levels of inflation, we recognized that we needed to uh, roll out a policy to address that in the uh, schedules world. Mark and I got the policy out there uh, fairly quickly, uh, let it run for a few months, recognized a chance to uh, further improve it. But probably more important, Mark, along with Stephanie Schott from the Mass Program Office, saw a need to do uh, quite a bit of uh, workforce training so that they understand what the new policy required, how it worked, uh, how to be a good partner to industry in a very trying time. And uh, picking up on our theme, technology was a really big piece of this. Uh, We stood up a dashboard to ensure that we had a visibility of the workload of the progress that we were making. And so since we implemented the policy, we processed across GSA a good 1,300 different uh, price uh, adjustment mods, uh, really leveraging the flexibilities in the policy that uh, we had issued. You know, at this point, we've now reached a uh, steady state with that mod processing time uh, is actually lower than under uh, other mods. Not hearing a whole lot of complaints or concerns from industry uh, took us a little while to get on top of it, but I think we have a pretty effective uh, response at this point. You know, my read of what you did is you did, you know, in terms of flexibilities, you know, you you lifted the a restriction on the number of times in a uh, a contractor could ask for 
price increase during a particular contract period. You also looked at the ceiling and, and the ability to go over that and how that would work and, and also lowered the approval authorities. A bunch of different other steps. Those are just some of them. And I think one of the things that that policy did is sort of, you know, created the ability for GSA to react more quickly to market forces. Is that something you're looking at and potentially looking at, you know, making some of these things or considering whether to make some of these changes more permanent over time? Uh, yeah, that's a good description, Roger. Thank you. Probably should have talked more about what the policy actually did, but yes, uh, you summarized it uh, quite accurately. And yes, you'll find on our regulatory agenda that we do have an update to the EPA clause uh, planned. Uh, we're aiming at a proposed rollout this summer. One of the things that we recognized is that we actually had six different alternate versions of the EPA clause across the schedules program. Each of those was born for a good and logical reason at the time it was created, but it's probably time to bring these together to standardize, to uh, get down to uh, a standard clause or maybe a standard clause with an alternate. You know, we'll figure that out through the rulemaking. But absolutely, right. we always want to apply the lessons we learn to uh, the next set of policy or to the next regulation. And yeah, opportunity to do that here. Yeah, that's, I mean, I i didn't realize there were six different clauses. That's, that's one of those legacy things, right? From all the different solicitations. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, six alternate versions. Oh, six alternate. Okay, okay. That, which could be mean six versions, theoretically, yep. in different contracts. Yep. I know industry will be very interested in hearing how that... In, that progresses and then, you know, an opportunity to comment as appropriate. So let's move on to the next topic I, I wanted to discuss with you. And that that's the COVID emergency. And I think it might be good just to quickly talk about some of the authorities that were used to respond to the COVID emergency as government and industry working together to respond to the pandemic, um, you know, and then maybe a little bit about what it means now to, that the emergency is over, it's been declared over and sort of going back to regular order and a lot of things. And, and finally, just some quick lessons learned from the, you know, the response that, that you put in place, that GSA put in place in working with industry. I know that's three big topics, but I think we can get sure. into it. Okay. Let me start this with a huge shout out to GSA's acquisition workforce who did some incredible work in responding to the uh, national emergency. From a volume standpoint, Roger, we placed some 36,000 orders, uh, and yet we focused on competition throughout and on small business. 65% of the dollars we obligated were competitive, and 57% of the dollars went to small businesses. I think you'd not be surprised to know that public building service uh, primarily bought uh, cleaning and disinfecting type of services. And that FASA, uh, of course, bought a ton of uh, personal protective equipment, all kinds of IT products to support telework, all kinds of IT services, and a wide range of other professional services. All really big things that help the federal government carry on with its mission. Having learned from prior emergencies, we conducted procurement management reviews mid-process to make sure that we were following the right rules, processes, documenting things accordingly. And yeah, boy, we had to issue a lot of policy. I kind of organized those into three big buckets of policy. There are things uh, that we did so it would be faster, so it would be easier to respond. Those are, in some ways, fairly traditional increases to the micro-purchase threshold, the simplified acquisition threshold, the simplified leasing acquisition threshold. 
And in the emergency, that returns us to standard thresholds. Second, we had a uh, series of policies that were all about supporting telework, supporting remote work, and uh, supporting our workforce. A lot of the acquisition regulations, they were written with the idea that work's going to be performed in an office setting. You know, when folks were running the farm uh, a decade, two decades ago, who imagined primary telework? So uh, the right. policies that we had to uh, put in place in this bucket uh, were really to support that environment. It was things like return receipt cards, wet signatures, raised seals, uh, in-person meetings, and the like. Those are all going to continue. GSA and lots of other agencies now work in a hybrid or remote environment. That's why we're pushing those cases through the FAR process so that they become permanent authorities. But in the meantime, uh, all of those uh, COVID policies continue because they now support uh, hybrid and remote work. Our third set of policies were all about supporting our industry partners. Some of these were really COVID-specific, and those go away. For example, the policies around the COVID safety protocols, uh, policies around stay-at-home orders. But there were other policies that were about business relationships, accelerated payment, not canceling uh, contracts uh, for uh, low sales uh, under the uh, cancellation clause, uh, the inflation protections that we just mentioned. Those all are going to continue. And finally, Roger, I think you also then asked me about lessons learned from this. Yes. Absolutely. We've always stressed government industry communications. Well, boy, did this double and redouble the importance of ensuring that we have a good and proactive and consistent industry uh, communication approach. We really recognized how much we need to understand their needs. Uh, we recognized how important our relationship with industry associations was as part of that, because we just have too many industry partners that we can't have those conversations one-on-one that we really need to work with the associations and get a lot of key messages out. We saw so many ways that we could leverage technology in doing that, uh, from standing up subject-specific web pages, uh, doing huge uh, Zoom webinars, a whole host of things in and around uh, the communication. And probably the other big lesson was our workforce, uh, again, proved how open they are to innovation can't imagine how many processes we had to rethink and redefine uh, in the midst of it. Uh, how do you conduct a uh, virtual source selection? How do you conduct a virtual uh, inspection? A ton of things that we rethought, and many of them are now becoming staples of how we want to practice acquisition going forward. Right. Um, well, that, you know, that's a good place to stop because we're up on the break, Jeff. And uh, when we come back, I want to... You, I might have one more question. You can think about it during the break. You know, what the role of data in the COVID response, just what you saw from across government. Uh, and But after that question, let's turn to Ability One and get an update on, you know, on, on it and its efforts in supporting folks with um, disabilities and, um, and maybe touch real briefly towards the end on the acquisition workforce and I promise on the next time I have, I have you on, we'll start with the acquisition workforce. How about that? Okay. Uh, I always put them first, so thank you. All right. So uh, I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf, and my guest today has been Jeff Kosis, and we'll be right back with the final segment. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jeff Kosis. He's a senior procurement executive for the General Services Administration, and uh, last segment we we were talking about COVID emergency and 
um, measures taken and uh, lessons learned. And the one question I left you with as we took the break, Jeff, is just the role of data. Um, And were there any lessons learned or things you saw with regard to use of data in response to the COVID emergency that you, you could share? Very definitely, Roger. More and more acquisition really is becoming about data. We covered that a little bit with transactional data reporting. Now, uh, we covered that uh, again when I was talking about how we've been dealing with the uh, EPA mods. Uh, what we're recognizing is there is a wealth of data through our acquisition systems, through FPDS. And so we ingest the data and we analyze it. We actually send it out uh, monthly to our heads of contracting activity to focus on you know, how are we performing against each of our key acquisition metrics? Uh, we're able to uh, even identify where there's opportunities to increase competition, where there's opportunities to focus on small business. You know, a big part of the challenge in the early days of the pandemic was uh, identifying potential sources. Where can we uh, acquire some of the key items, especially PPE, uh, technology, and so forth? A lot of that gets unlocked as you're starting to ingest data and figure out how to analyze it and lead you to those right kind of conclusions. And I think data is, it is almost like the blood in the circulatory system these days, right, of decision-making for everybody, whether it's commercial or government. And, you know, uh, you know that next phase, and we really haven't talked about this, but when I have you back on, we can talk about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and, you know, taking that big data and how are you, how, how, you see, you know, procurement evolving from that perspective, but that's, we'll do that next time. We'll tease people because I want to give you an opportunity to talk about ability one. I think you are the chair of the commission ability one. Is that the right way to say it? Or am I saying it incorrectly? No, that, that is absolutely correct. GSA uh, along with uh, 10 other agencies uh, by statute has a member of the ability one commission. Uh, there's also four private citizen members. Uh, so I'm the GSA representative, and in that role, I was elected as the uh, chair of the agency. So let me do a quick intro to uh, Ability One and hit some of the interesting things that are going on over there. You know, the acquisition community, they know Ability One as a mandatory source for items that are on the procurement list. And what the commission really does is leverage the power of federal acquisition in providing jobs. There's some 36,000 people who are blind or significantly disabled who work thanks to the program. 2,500 of them are ill, injured, or wounded warriors. Ability One has some 3,500 contracts worth $3.9 billion uh, scattered across about 2,500 different nonprofit agencies uh, all across the country, uh, as well as uh, Puerto Rico and Guam. And right now, we are in the midst of a major modernization effort. So in my role, we've really been emphasizing uh, modernization with four big strategic objectives, expanding what they call competitive integrated employment. Uh, Roger, you probably remember the days of sheltered workshops? Yes, Uh, I do. Yep. Right. But today, uh, one of the things I've learned from our citizen members is how important it is to uh, people with significant disabilities to be working side by side with people who don't have those disabilities. So, uh, expanding those opportunities for uh, our folks to work side by side, one of the key strategic objectives. Uh, Another is uh, increasing publicizing uh, good uh, jobs, uh, effective program governance, and partnering to increase employment uh, for our constituents. So as part of that, uh, 
uh, I've been talking a lot to the nonprofits about good contract performance, about quality, dependability, consistency, timely delivery, customer satisfaction, all those kinds of things that make up good contract performance. And, you know, this is probably a good chance to remind the federal contractors and subcontractors who are maybe listening to you that their contracts contain an aspirational 7% hiring goal. Uh, it comes under Section 503 of the Rehabilitation Act. Well, one of the great ways that uh, these contractors can meet that aspirational goal is uh, through subcontracting to Ability One, because then they often can find a source uh, of employees who, over time, may move from Ability One and become uh, direct hires of these contractors and subcontractors. So, in that regard, it does seems to me that this is. In my impression, it's kind of a sea change, a little bit because you did talk about you know the you know the the shops, um, and this sounds like a, a, you know you're looking more long term about how to integrate uh, you know the citizens, your constituents into into the workforce in a more general manner, and not just have it focused on the special workshops and that sort of things. That I mean, it seems to me that's a big that's a big shift. Um, how is it going? No, that is well described. Yeah, it is a big shift. We're seeing big gains, for example, in knowledge-based services. Nice example, a number of agencies have started uh, using the Ability One program to support them in contract closeout. So uh, a person with a disability then is working with federal agency employees, part of the same effort in contract administration. We're seeing that in uh, IT, in uh, cybersecurity, a whole host of areas. And we think that will be the growing portion of the program in years to come. And it, se- it seems to me that technology, too, creates opportunities to integrate individuals with disabilities in a much more seamless way into the general workforce. Is that something that you've observed? Definitely. Uh, I have heard from uh, some contractors is concerns about what is a reasonable accommodation to hire uh, people with uh, significant disabilities. And what we're finding with today's technology, a lot of these uh, accommodations are at low or very minor cost, and those costs more than offset with the higher retention rates for these uh, employees. So, yeah, the advances in technology, big part of why this is possible and part of what we're trying to harness through the Ability One role. And I don't know what it is because it's the flavor of the day, right? But artificial intelligence and, well, you know, I don't, I, don't yet, I'm, I don't even pretend to understand how that could potentially, you know, help folks with disabilities in the workforce. But uh, it seems to me there's got to be a, you know, opportunities there as well. I'm, I'm not a technologist, but it just seems there must be something there as well uh, moving forward. How long is your, you know, I guess your uh, term as the chair of the commission? It's a two-year term. And in February, I just uh, was reelected to a second term. So I am three months into a second uh, two-year term at this point. Well, congratulations. Congratulations on that. And it's a, do you find it as one of the more, um, you know, there's lots of aspects to your job and, you know, and public service is, you know, something that is, you know, I think is fundamental and, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad I served in government as well, but do you find, you know, your role working the commission, one of your, the more rewarding aspects of your job these days? Very definitely. I started it in that role during the pandemic. And, you know, when we were all uh, pretty much uh, 
in our houses, not going anywhere else. Then I wasn't doing any other community service, any other other type of outreach uh, action and so forth. And so I said, okay, I now this time that I'm not commuting and I now this time that I'm not doing other things. And so, hey, this is a the really the right time to go get involved here and see if I can do something that would be of help. And uh, I'm really happy that I've had this opportunity. Work with an amazing staff of the uh, commission. We've got a incredible new executive director. I think you probably know Kim Zeig. She does an amazing job uh, with the program. And she has been building a powerhouse staff brought in a new CFO, new general counsel, uh, a lot of regulatory expertise, uh, supplementing uh, a lot of other really talented folks. And they are charging really fast in all kinds of modernization efforts. Well, Jeff, that's great to hear. And that's a great place to close the show um, on a truly positive note. Uh, I want to thank my guest today, Jeff Kosas. He is the Senior Procurement Executive for the General Services Administration. I'm Roger Waldron. You've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.